Horse by Stacy Levine Read by Barry Press The horse was small, and his name was Robin. The horse's skin was loose and slid freely about his body as he moved. He lived with me. He was my pet, given to me to be a pet, and whined incessantly at the back door or lay for hours on the hood of my car in the driveway. The horse was perhaps the size of a dog, and his liver-colored, flaccid skin hung in sagging folds around his neck, legs, and chest. His mouth, open slightly, revealing his teeth, was always wet. Drool spilled from his mouth, and he seemed always to be begging for something, though one could not always know what. He often wanted, in the worst way, to be let either in or out of the house. I let him in or out accordingly, though he would only wander across the space of my living room or yard, whimpering and lying down when he did not know at last what to do. His neck was quite long, and it was spotted, as was the rest of his body, with dried rings and sores and a type of dark freckles that were tiny and almost black. The horse was my pet, meant to live at my house, meant to be fed by me. He moved incessantly. One noticed immediately his tremulous, skittish motions. He moved in and out of the house, whining, fearful, coughing, sighing windily in a kind of staccato that would break in his throat and cause a viscous mucus to blow from his nostrils. Then he would go lie on the hood of the car, half-sleeping, eyes slitted, sighing further. As he slept, his back would contract, perhaps in a kind of nervous exhaustion. The spasms were short, uncontrolled, full of the blind, helpless strength and muscle which intrigues me. I watched the muscles move beneath the skin. I watched him carefully from my chair on the porch. Clearly he had not lived in any one place for very long. He was always afraid. Everything was ceaselessly horrifying to him, and he jumped in fear and whined in pain at simply every noise I made. He never even acknowledged that I placed a cup of food on the gravel driveway for him each night, that I was the one. Without even looking up at me as I stood on the porch, he would trip blindly toward the cup and eat quickly with great slobbering noises often in less than a minute. When he was finished, he would run away often behind the car. He simply did not understand our relation, and he made no effort in our relation. He rarely even looked at me, though when he did, his expression was always a shivering, guilty one. Otherwise, he spent his days straggling about my house and property endlessly, breathing heavily through his nostrils and whimpering to himself. It was hard to believe he had ever belonged to a family, or even to a mother. He was quite ugly for a horse, and very tiny and light on his feet. He did not walk firmly, but rather picked his way across the gravel of my driveway or across my wooden porch and floors. It was as if he had no hooves, 
but only the soft heels that humans have, indeed. When probed, his heels proved to be undersized and tender, full of bleeding scratches, not like hooves at all. He often begged to be let out of the house, and would then run immediately to the porch, carefully and nervously sniffing the wooden railing. He turned in awful circles and left the porch by means of the steps. He tripped to the gravel, stamping and scuffling there until he was exhausted, and finally went to lie on the hood of the car. He had been given to me to be my pet. He was my pet. He walked strangely. It seemed his heels hurt him quite a bit, for he would whine and sputter with each tentative step he took in picking his way across the patch of gravel and back. As for the rest of his body, I noticed immediately that the skin of his neck was tender and loose, though rough. The skin was pleasant to the touch, I noticed, though at first it seemed loose in a way that was strange and distasteful. His skin was queer and dense, I noticed. It locked around my fingers as I rubbed him, though it also yielded to my touch. It was supple skin, smooth as velour. No one would have been able to guess he possessed such softness. I touched him often, and though at the very first his skin had seemed indeed strange and distasteful in its looseness, it was not a looseness that I would really allow to disturb me, I finally decided. So I knew in the end that I could touch him whenever I pleased. I rubbed him very hard, regularly, though he was covered with dried rings and sores as well as dark freckles, some of which were raised. I touched him, pulling at the looser parts of his skin as he would try to dart past my chair on the porch. I held his strange texture between my hands as he whined and whimpered, bewildered, looking only to the ground. He would often flatten his large, trembling ears, looking alarmed. I rubbed him when I wanted. His skin was very warm, after all, and because of the dried rings and sores, a bristly rough effect was in fact achieved, an effect that countered his loose softness, which, after all, was distasteful. I would hold him, lift him onto my lap upside down. His warm limbs churned slowly as if underwater. I would knead him then. He never struggled, though he certainly could have, and once, because I held him for so long, he began to howl. Since I did not know where my horse had come from, I began to wonder if he was unclean, for this was a possibility. The scabby rings and sores on his skin could have been repositories of bacteria, and certainly his mucus, which often dropped onto my porch, might have indeed carried any number of diseases. And if he had been living in the wilds at any time prior to the time he had arrived at my house, that too would have increased his risk for picking up something from another animal or even an insect. I decided to wash him carefully. However, I could not find a suitable soap when I looked in my shed, though I did find a box of sterile latex gloves, and it occurred to me that I could wear these while handling my horse. Yet if I did so, I realized I would not have been able to feel his skin directly. Finally, 
After some deliberation, I decided not to use the gloves, for I would not undergo, to be sure, too much risk in touching my horse, though there might have been, in fact, some slender risk. Yet, that risk would not be significant in the scheme of things. And in the handling of any pet, there is risk. In recognizing this, I decided I could touch my horse whenever I liked. Still, I was uncertain as to whether or not he was free of disease. He quite truthfully could have been thick with germs. He could have been unclean, and still I was touching him whenever I wanted. I quickly decided that he should receive inoculations, and that I would make arrangements for this soon, though these inoculations could not take place reasonably soon, as it was summer now and no one at all remained in the town. One day, after I had placed his cup of food on the driveway, I noted with interest that my horse's belly had ballooned inordinately. It did not return to its usual size during the next four hours as he digested his food, nor when I fed him later. Instead, the belly ballooned even more hideously, swaying and juddering halfway down the length of his legs. Even more disturbing was that he did not appear to notice this change directly. Instead of truly noticing, he ran in and out of the house in even more of a panic than ever, sometimes spinning in circles for no clear reason— his screeching did not stop then, not for a minute. I slammed the door. He had not noticed this change in his body and had not even looked at himself. He only kicked about the yard hysterically now, wheezing and crying in his ridiculous manner. I retreated further into the house and realized that now the sound of him was always in my ears. I had not noticed this before, but the sound filled my house and yard. When he stepped on a sharp piece of gravel, I would hear his high screech puncture the air, and I would grow fatigued. I would even grow angry. His belly had ballooned hideously and would not return to its normal size. It was obviously swollen due not only to the food within, but also to an accumulation of fluid just beneath the surface of the skin, and soon I made the decision to lance his belly, for this condition clearly needed to be relieved in some way. I knew that sooner or later I would need to take some action. Otherwise, an emergency could arise. I decided to prepare him for the lancing, I fed him a large meal. He slathered and whined piteously over the food, and when he was done, with his belly now incredibly distended, he went to lie on the hood of the car, whimpering still and finally settling into a light sleep. Then, in a few smooth motions, I strode toward him, rolled him over, and pinned his thin legs to the metal, this last was not necessary, though, for even as I was lancing him, he lay still as a baby. I lanced him thoroughly and in a fashion that allowed for quick and complete drainage, and incredibly he did nothing more than whimper once quietly and turn his head away. When I was done, I told him so, and then let him go, noting that he only continued to lie there as if confused with a pathetic look of weakness about him. 
After washing myself thoroughly and then returning to the hood of the car, preparing to clean the fluid away with a hose, I told him clearly that he was entirely too weak and that I would never feed him again. For it was true. I saw quite clearly that it would do him good to forage for himself. And since his belly now had been lanced and the fluid was gone, that he would be lighter, more agile, and therefore more able to forage out of doors for his food, and that I should have required him to do so from the very beginning. I began then to leave the porch door unlatched, so he could push his way in and out of the house whenever he wanted. It was midsummer at this time. Because it was summer, the streets full of petals that fell from the trees and piled against the tires of parked cars were empty. Everyone had gone somewhere else. Because it was summer, the petals, smelling so sweet, fell everywhere and filled the always silent yards and street. Because he now was a foraging horse, my pet would hobble away from my property onto the lots of the empty neighboring houses, foraging his loose skin snout to the ground. He foraged well, though he continued to whine incessantly, and often tripped over the stones in the gardens. I saw that he was, despite his whining, quite naturally good at collecting the blades of grass he needed, spreading his lips to extend his wet tongue and collecting, in addition to grass, all manner of dirt and gravel. After foraging, my horse would run to lie on the hood of my car, to loll his head there and to close his eyes and whimper excessively, even though he knew that I sat nearby, on the porch, watching and holding my drinking glass in the afternoons which were insulated and heavy with the stillness of a million petals. Incredibly, he made no direct protest about having to forage for his food. After all, I could not construe his constant blubbering as any kind of protest. It was not long after this that he discovered the petals and began to eat them in front of me. He enjoyed their taste, evidently. He would go into the street, under the trees, to eat them, and even ate them with gusto. To see the way he enjoyed the petals disturbed me only because his pleasure made him more ridiculous. He drooled excessively and would lift his head suddenly while eating to bolt through the petals in excitement, audibly gulping air too much air and expelling it in spasms through his mouth like an infant. The sparse gray hair around his ears lifted in the breeze. It seemed... He was having some kind of happiness. And since all the streets, the gutters, and the lawns in the neighborhood now overflowed with the sweet petals, for it was the season, I saw that his eating could not really be construed as foraging, but merely as grazing. He would never learn anything. Not strength, not cunning, nor survival, by simply strolling to the edge of my lawn and effortlessly satisfying his hunger there. He was beginning also to grow a bit fatter on the petals which he scooped up in big mouthfuls from the street. There was a thickening around his small belly, though his skin remained loose, and he still made all manner of noise, bucking excitedly around the empty yards now. After thinking 
and watching him very carefully, I decided he might need something like a clamp. I went into my shed to look, and after finding there an actual clamp with two screws by which pressure could be increased or decreased, I decided to use it. I felt sure he needed something like a clamp and that a clamp would help him. So I clamped the loose skin at his right side just over his ribs. The clamp's metal edges were covered with a hard rubber that would prevent his skin from being pierced, and I told him so. After the clamp was attached to his side and hanging there, beat against his flank with his gait until a few blisters appeared, I noticed with surprise that he did not try to reach for it and did not attempt to yank it from his body. In any case, that would have broken the skin, and he sensed this, I was certain. Still, he accepted the clamp completely and had lain so still as I attached it with no struggling of any kind. And now, though he could have reached the clamp easily with his mouth, he made no attempt to tug at it or even to test it. I knew this for a fact, because I watched my horse at all times now. Perhaps, I thought briefly, I should now apply another clamp to his mouth. Yet, despite the fact that this would have reminded him that he had a mouth with which to protest if he chose, it would also have kept him from eating entirely, and he might have died. So I discarded that idea. Soon after, though, I quickly noted that his wailing and whining had stopped after I had applied the clamp, that he had grown silent. It was as if his attention had moved away from himself and somewhere into the distance. My house and property were quiet now, as was the entire neighborhood, which no longer echoed with his shrill voice. He lost interest in the petals now, and returned to forage for grass as he knew he was meant to. He foraged now along the patch of gravel for the few blades that grew there. He would not venture further than this, as he once had, and he now kept his head lowered constantly, even when he was not foraging, but only standing. Though one evening, as he stood near the porch in the gravel, I caught him raising his head for a moment to glimpse at me. He was now subsisting on this half-hearted foraging, as he had done before the clamp, Yet now I noticed, though he seemed to forage, he was not really foraging for food, but only for appearance's sake. The truth was that he simply had little hunger now. Even to begin with, I recalled his hunger had not been so great. This lack of will was sad, I perceived. It was self-destructive and even shocking. It was shocking how as time began to pass away and the summer to wear on, his body grew smaller and smaller the size of his body simply shrank, and his skin grew even looser, sagging around his legs and chest. Somehow he just did not enjoy the fact that he was a foraging horse, and could not conceive of anything else to do with the time in which he was not making a show of foraging or lying on the hood of the car. In these few weeks he had grown quite a bit smaller, and his head began to look even more ridiculous ridiculous, much too large for his small neck and body. He was simply no longer hungry, and I could tell he was no longer hungry. He took small, lethargic bites of the grass he found. 
He had difficulty in swallowing, and this was all because of the disturbance of the clamp I knew. Yet incredibly he had done nothing in all this time to combat the painful presence of the clamp. He simply hobbled along as usual, making a show of foraging severely disappointing and even infuriating me. His moist eyes would blink toward the railing of the hot porch. Holding my drinking glass, I would sit, watching. His eyes would dart to the ground, quietly fearful. I watched how his flesh shrank and shrank every day, how his legs grew more reedy. I sat on the porch, out of the summer sun, thinking how it had been so very easy for me to clamp him on the side where his skin was loose, so easy that I almost had not done it at all. He allowed me everything, my pet. I had not even needed to inform him as I had been about to lance him. I am a doctor. Because he had lain so still and trusting. I wondered why on earth my horse had even wanted to stay here with me this summer, during which all surrounding neighbors had gone away and left their silent parked cars to be covered with petals from the trees. I wondered where on earth he had come from whimpering, ceaselessly taking such stuttering steps and crying out for so long until he was finally quiet. As the days grew even longer and more hot and the town ever more silent, it seemed the ground surrounding my house became flatter, wider. I could see for miles. I decided that I might someday remove the clamp, though I was not sure exactly when I would do so. Still, I would soon decide. If he were in less discomfort, it occurred to me, perhaps he would be able to leave me. Why not? Perhaps that would be the best thing for him. But also, having observed him all this time, I was able to see clearly that he would never change, never. He would always be like this, piteous and hopeless, with any owner. You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a nonprofit author-run publisher of innovative fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard My Horse by Stacy Levine from the anthology An Illuminated History of the Future, edited by Curtis White and published by FC2 in 1989. Next, Stacy is joined by writer Evelyn Hampton author of Famous Children and Famished Adults, for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation. Your description in the story, especially of the horse, just the horse's physical presence 
is really detailed and specific. There's this line, it was as if he had no hooves, but only the soft heels that humans have. And these descriptions, like they're super specific. And at the same time, the story kind of floats just vaguely beyond like the reality I feel like I live in. Um, and this just got me wondering about like where you were in time and space, um, psychically, physically, when you were writing this story. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it is an old story, but I was um, like 28 when I wrote it. And um, I was in San Francisco and I was writing it in longhand in, I think, sort of notebooks. And uh, I was not in a good place. Um, and later kind of heard from, you know, people into to, to uh, so-called New Age spiritualism in Oregon. And then from people who've studied psychoanalysis that this age in our era, in our culture, um, 26, 27, 28, 29, um, is hard, is a hard time. Um, and then I've just anecdotally heard later that it was a hard time. I wish I would have known them then. But I was um, writing in this mm, cafe called the Opera Cafe, I think, or the Verity Cafe or something um, <clears throat> in North Beach. I don't know if it's still there. And um, on the jukebox, there was, um, all, it was all opera arias. And uh, it was a good place to write. Um, but I, I don't think I was in a good way just because of things going on in my life, my age. And then at the same time, I was doing a lot of reading, probably theory reading about um, human power dynamics and power dynamics and relationships. So you can see that in the story. And then you asked about a sentence is such as the one you read. And um, well, first, I think it's just so necessary to be specific um, um, when we're writing. I just think that helps clinch a piece and make it a piece to this, like um, getting into specificity of, of whatever kind, at least some. And um, so I knew that was important. And then, I mean, a sentence like that, um, it kind of like slightly doesn't make sense. So it, uh, I think in lo logical terms. Um, so it comes from, that tells me it was a sentence that comes from process, like um, not something calculated ahead of time. I did not say, oh, I'm going to write a sentence like that. It's something that came out of, you know, the process of writing, but it also beyond that, I think it sounds like the kind of sentence that um, I feel grateful when one comes to me like that. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't come from the front of my head. It comes from the back. It's a back. It's a back mm -hmm. comes from the back. <laughs> <laughs> That, it doesn't mean that much more than what I just said, but <laughs> there's no shades of meaning there, but it does come from the back of my head. Uh -huh. 
I wonder, like, there is a kind of musicality to it. Like, it sounds like you're paying attention to the sound. Like, he had no hooves, um, heels that humans have. I wonder, this has me thinking about, like, maybe the influence of music on your writing. And you mentioned writing in this opera cafe. So I just, I wonder if there's something maybe about how you're listening to language that comes from listening to music. Well, and you know, that famous quote by Thomas Mann that all writers are musicians Mm. or dancers, but, um, or they, they wanted to be, but they couldn't be. (laughs) But um, to me in um, that sentence sounds like it comes from, from having a real clear picture of who that character is, which I did, which I didn't at first, but then as I was writing it, um, I quickly saw him as um, someone, someone narcissistic. And, um, and that's just the beginning of his, of his issues, but um, he is in love with his own. Yeah. He's just likes the sound of his voice. I think, but I think um, it that comes from just pretending to be him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a lot of H's in the sentence. <laughs> yeah. so that might that might have been a good accident. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, thinking about the narrator, um, I'm curious about this narrator character's. And maybe the story's interest in origins. And you mentioned the kind of power dynamics. So maybe this is related to that. Um, like the narrator says about the horse, it was hard to believe he had ever belonged to a family or even to a mother. And then a little later, since I did not know where my horse had come from, I began to wonder if he was unclean for this was a possibility. <laughs> right. What were you thinking? Um it just seems, it seems like this interest in origins is connected to like anxiety about the unknown, about the other maybe. And this also feels familiar to me from your other stories and your novels. Um, Maybe the anxiety part is familiar. Yeah. So I wonder how you think about um, just what you think about this, that kind of like, if it seems like that's operating in your writing, this concern with origins you know sometimes like we all will write outside of our awareness which is interesting in itself Mm -hmm. um i think and then you know one time like with um my not this collection but my second collection and there was a review of it that i can't remember where it was but it was a woman who who said that it this collection features a parade of misfits and that really ticked me off because it's not i mean that she's just claiming that i'm pointing to others and saying oh there are others <laughs> or or they are misfits what you know that's incorrect what it's about is um how we all are implicated in that and we all and this, and because of the culture, you know, um, with its, mm, though our culture emphasizes individuality 
and innovation, et cetera, um, and success. But there's still a, a puritanical thing of, um, you know, a, a hyper alertness to those who don't fit in. And um, I know that from living here, but I don't, yeah, I haven't lived for an extended time in any other cultures or countries. And it would be nice to make a comparison. But yeah, I mean, I think we all in any community feel some kind of a unspoken uh, pressure tendency um, toward uh, normativity. So I think I was speaking to that and um, trying to express it in writing as a felt thing, um, as an experiential thing that is not easy to, to summarize in straightforward English. Um, and then um, someone who's, who was working on their PhD in Utah was um, contacted me and told me they thought um, they wondered if I had done some work in uh, or research in disability studies from my fiction. I was really surprised. Um, but the more I thought about it, the the more I made sense. And then the more I, I began to research a little bit or just do some reading in disability studies, which was all new to me as a discipline. Um, but I think, um, you know, that really resonated for me when she said that. And um, it's been pretty fruitful so far because it's a really dynamic academic area right now. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, I think there's something to that. And I think, you know, and there's overlap because uh, thinking of, and I feel like I, some of these characters that I'm creating come from the past, like the past beyond my own memory and, and in my um, older relatives, that is my aunt my parents, my grandparents' memories. I think I, you know, because we all retain that, um, those voices um, or something like that, voices of people who are older who raise us. So I think um, I was reaching, I think some of that was reaching to me or I was reaching to it. Mm -hmm. And in, um, because the world was really different, you know, and, you know, they would just use, cripple as a noun and thing, you know, just for example, just that kind of thing. What you mentioned about characters coming from the past has me thinking about um, the novel you've, you've been working on, Mice 1961, mm -hmm. um, read an excerpt of, I wonder if that's, if that's happening here. Maybe I'm thinking if, um, of the past just because of the date in the title. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that does take place during the Cold War, okay. so it is happening there, um, and that's the source of has been the source of a lot of amusement for me <laughs> when I'm writing it, because um, you know it was kind of acceptable to say things. I mean, we know this from watching Mad Men, and yeah, but yes, that is about someone who has a disability who um, has albinism and can't see well. So um, that's the 
central character, but the narrator is is watching these proceedings from um but lives with that person and her sister lives behind the couch. So <laughs> um it seems like in that setup you've you've you found a way to use both first person and third person. Like you kind of move in and out of those modes where sometimes where the narrator is speaking clearly in first person, but then the narrator is also watching, like observing a lot. And it seems like there it's possible to forget about the narrator at least for a while and just read. Yeah. Um, so I just, I'm always just curious about choices writers are making about like point of view and narration. Um, I wonder if that was like a deliberate move. Like I want to use first person and third person, or if it just kind of emerged from the process. No, it was deliberate. You know, like, you know, isn't the great Gatsby just, just the most beautiful book. (laughs) And I, you know, admiring that and that you could really, really forget about the narrator. Mm -hmm. Is his name Nick? There's Nick. I think it's Nick. Yeah, maybe it's Nick. And um, I, when I first started to try and uh, when I was trying to establish the whole, you know, arena of the book, the novel, like um, I wanted the narrator to be so removed, like barely ever there. And I thought that would be really funny too to just have her just so occasionally say something. But then that I couldn't do that. It just wasn't going to be possible. So I had to bring her more in into it. And yeah, I mean, she does have her own life and the book hints at it, but it's not um, as interesting to me or as important. So I tried to keep her back, but um, it just seemed kind of empty at the same time without her in this case, or it seemed like, why is this person saying these things or why is this person observing these other two people and it just raised too many questions so I had to not only develop the characters I had to develop her so it's a lot of work this excerpt that I read of my 1961 and also just I think I've read all of your published short stories and like like they all strike me as being like very funny um, maybe darkly funny, like you're dealing with, um, maybe emotionally like heavy things like, um, animal abuse, maybe in my horse, um, or someone feeling like an outcast. Um, but it's also very funny. And I just wonder about like what for you, what the role of humor is in your writing. It's really there. It's really important. Um, but I see things as being pretty funny. And I know I laugh a lot and people don't know what the hell I'm laughing about. So, so um, <laughs> like students and stuff. So it's, I'm aware of um, trying to make it all better all the time. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. Um, one of the useful things about not quite being, creating fiction that's really on earth the earth we know or the place we know is that it's not so horrid anymore 
it, it may then if it's not quite a horse, you know, it's like about the size of a dog and it has freckles and, and, you know, and then that, that character, the horse came from a dream. I told you that, but um, the more, and so removing it, um, yes, paying homage to um, folk tales and oral history and, and uh, uh, fairy tales and, you know, those those tales that were spoken that were so important and so intriguing and about being human. Um, and then you can also, it seemed to me, fun, it would function as a buffer or a way of like not having something so horrid as animal abuse being, it wouldn't have to be so horrid because it's really not a horse. And it's really I mean, it's because it's a story because it's so, so much a story because the horse goes on and lies, takes a nap on the hood of the car. <laughs> and, and so we can work with it better because it's, the pain is um, anesthetized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe pain in that um, kind of un slightly unreal realm where the story takes place what would be pain here isn't, isn't pain there. Yeah. Well, maybe we, we could even laugh about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this seems like a good time to ask you, you Evelyn about Billy. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, Billy. I read about Billy from a novella that you, um, I, I think finished, you said, mm -hmm. I think it's done. And I'm just, I was just, um, I love that, that he's the person, a person made him maybe, or a person watched mm -hmm. him being made and decided he was a Billy. I, I really love that. But I, but I'm going, what is Billy? Yeah, that's kind of the question, I guess, that, um, that comes up throughout. Um, yeah. What is Billy? Mm -hmm. What makes Billy? Billy like he's made so it's also taking place in a kind of a world that's like parallel or tangential to the world we live in it's a post-apocalypse story but um mm -hmm. it's one that's not interested in exploring um apocalypses or thinking really about kind of that genre like it just kind of always I one of the rules I made for myself was just not to explain what had happened um mm -hmm. I wanted the focus to be on like just the really kind of gritty material world like if you have to build a structure to live in out of just kind of junk you find after most things have collapsed like what's what what would the main character want like Tyvek maybe or like rods of different kinds so I was thinking about like the bits and pieces Wow. Of this collapsed world. And Billy was made out of out of these bits and pieces, but somehow has something extra that kind of animates whatever Billy is. And then the character, the main character, Carrie, which is not her real name, um, is also kind of interested in like, I made this thing, but also it's it adds something that I didn't put in it that kind of makes it what it is. Oh my gosh. She also says there's something about Billy that could be useful. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, she's definitely thinking like Billy. She is kind. I'm kind of jokingly calling Billy her son, uh, and part of the joke is like one of the first things she thinks of is like, what what can I get with this son? Like, what can the son do for me? Mm-hmm. Um, how how will my life be a little bit better if I have a son? I love that because it the culture we revere the the giving side of motherhood <laughs> we it. and it's not um always that it's just sort of a fact right and yeah we'll use their kids for just in terrible ways yeah absolutely and i'm even thinking about like i don't know maybe a hundred years ago if um people I don't know if this is, this, this seems to be the story anyway about families a while ago that you needed kids to like help out around the farm or, you know, get jobs done or take care of, yeah, just little jobs that needed to be done, milking cows or whatever. Um, so it seems like there, there's some like strategic thinking. Farm families had to be big because there's so much work to do. Like you needed, you needed workers. So that meant having a lot of kids. It's a way of saying we don't have sex or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe a, a way of making sex legitimate in a culture that just values productivity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, it seems like you're always thinking about how stories are told and the role stories can play and like the kinds of things that stories can do in the world. Um, first, I wonder if that feels true to you. Um, and then also, I wonder just thinking like about publishing, has it ever felt like a liability to you to be a writer who's writing, at least it seems to me, is thinking about writing and thinking about stories? Well, it's in in this very same series when this woman from FC2 interviewed Richard Grayson, which um, I recommend that interview to people listening, but um, I think he just said, yeah, writing's writing is about writing. How could writing not be about writing? But your first question was thinking about stories and how they're told. But I think um, I just, I am really happy to just, forget about it sometimes and just listen to stories or watch them or read them. And um, I'm extremely credulous that way. Like, yeah, I just, I've been tricked a few times. And, um, but then, you know, I think it was like maybe, I think um, 15 or 20 years ago where my partner at the time said, I don't see how anyone could write these days without some kind of a nod to yeah this is this is a fake thing or this is a uh this is a made object and um um it's in this it it's taking up these conventions and so yeah and i suddenly thought oh yeah that's that's pretty much it right there and so i think from that moment i became more focused on that and um I did not want to be naive so I could not ever 
<laughs> write anything again that didn't didn't um, make note of that. But it felt very true. Mm-hmm. It felt very true, and it's also about like where we are historically with writing and the age of the novel. And um, so, yeah, and I think it it's something um well then i'm doing it a lot in my novel mice that it's it's almost finished i've been saying that for two years but yeah so um and then publishing yuck (laughs) it's yeah i mean that's um that's what everybody's complaining about right i definitely complain about it yeah (laughs) well i mean i think the uh, publishing industry should publish what readers are resistant to. Mm-hmm. They should, and they don't for different cultural reasons, but also for um, its business reasons. But, you know, as Richard Grayson pointed out, it's, you know, this pre-Reagan, um, this tax law that um, makes it, for publishers, it's just more of a risk financially, whereas because they can't write off their unsold books, like a, as a, it's a tax law, so they can't write that off. But whereas um, in the past they could, hmm. and they also, and also he mentioned that just the funding for libraries makes this an unfortunate truth too, because it used to be that libraries would buy just thousands of copies of books that people weren't really buying so that at least the publishers could make some make some money even if they weren't selling to people so just just all these like dumb reasons i don't know what do you think well for me like just knowing like it can be can be easy to take rejections very personally um and start feeling like well maybe the world just doesn't want to read the kind of thing i'm writing but knowing that there are like maybe structural reasons like why why it's difficult um makes it seem less personal and i guess also maybe takes some of the urgency out of it for me like i don't i don't i feel no urgency to publish at all and that's mm-hmm. taken away some of the urgency from the writing for me I wonder what the dynamic is like for you. Um, gee, it's, I think um, I have felt um, like I need to, I'm not going to be okay if I don't write something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess that constitutes urgency and it's not very fun. I, I really don't recommend it to like my younger relatives or anything. Oh. Um but it's just kind of, I've kind of accepted that about myself. Um, and um, otherwise, when it's not um, a matter of, you know, writing, saving a person's life, wh- which it can do, um, then it's, um, I think, curiosity. I mean, I think for me, humor comes into it because if I see or witness a particularly like hilarious thing that is, I mean, it's probably going to be some off kilter thing that I've never thought of before or some person's way of 
um, reacting, responding to something that I've just never seen before. I mean, I know some characters here in Seattle and, um, and I um, kind of reach out to people I think are really unique that way. That also means needing to put up some boundaries too, of course. But um, if I feel um, if I, so if I witness that I do have this, I don't know if it's urgency, but it's an urge to um, put it, to set it somewhere in a setting, meaning like um, to, to put it in to some kind of writing mm-hmm. and to make it clear. And that, and I, a lot, you know, as you know, a lot goes into that, like, to try and be able to capture something. Cause it doesn't, it's not only writing that it's writing the whole setting. Mm-hmm. I'm talking for some reason in terms of jewelry, but, but like the setting around it. So that's why it's been kind of fun to have a novel project for some years, because you can just throw stuff into it um, as it comes up in life. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, but mm-hmm. Um, yes, I guess it's an urge to, um, I don't know what it is. It's just an urge to, um, capture something funny or unique or something that illuminates something about humanity. Yeah. And it seems like, like the pace of the novel, um, it gives you kind of a big net for capturing parts of your life. I wonder with Mice 1961, you mentioned that you've been, you thought for the last two years, I think you said that it's almost finished, which just makes me wonder um, about the pace that you're writing at. And I also think of pace, even in your short stories, sometimes there's this kind of deliberate um, and sometimes looping cadence um, that seems, yeah, just kind of slow and sly and plotting, um, which also makes me wonder about about the pace at which, for you, the story is unfolding. Well, I did write this story called Sabrina. I don't know if you read it because no one read it. It was in like the the New Schools Literary Magazine some years back. I don't think I have read it. It's so fast. It's like this Los Angeles and this car and driving around and a crime. And um, it's pretty fast. I was just, that was one story I wrote that I was just in love with for, or for not, I mean, you know, with the scenario. I mean, I guess that novel I wrote, Francis Johnson, that is kind of, although Francis is riding her bike all over the place, she gets into some mud. And it is kind of like, she just keeps riding. And there is, um, even a snail is mentioned in that book, but it's a, it's a slow, it is slow. And, um, and um, I, it's scary to try and ask people to, go slow because readers don't want to do that because we are so caffeinated and so um, Mm -hmm. full of quick cuts in our minds and dreams. And, you know, it's not our fault, but we're just, we're just, you know, all nauseated from all constantly not even knowing it from all the like 
you know, lightning speed editing, uh, you know, films and visuals that we're seeing. So part of me is, um, wants to be a brat and be like, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to slow down. And I mean, not slower than life really is, but, or that our experience really is, but slow as it is without all the noise. And, um, that, that is, it's, it's kind of hard to accept it. It's kind of hard to be there, but anyway, when I'm writing that, once I'm inside of an exchange, like I love writing dialogue, uh, if I'm inside an exchange, um, well, they keep talking. <laughs> they don't stop talking necessarily, but it it is a different pace that is, um, it's uh, somewhat about being contrary for me, just like, you know, no, it's going to go at this pace. That is um, not a lot of, um, there's not, in, you know, not a lot of racing around. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of like uh, acceleration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, till maybe the end or something. What's your thought about scene writing and pace? Well, Billy is... Billy is still on my mind. It's the most recent kind of complete thing that I wrote. Um, so I, I think I understand how the scenes are working there. It's pretty kind of clipped. Um, there are these kind of short scenes with white space or ideally like a page between them. And I was trying to end each one a little bit before what would feel complete, um, like a beat before. Oh, that's great. Kind of what feels complete. And sometimes that meant like deleting the line that I had typed that kind of wrapped things up neatly um, because I wanted it to seem a little unraveled or like each part not cohesively connecting to the next just because um, it's happening in a world where things are not cohesive and connected. Um. And someone who read it said that it felt kind of like, like maybe avant-garde film editing or something that would kind of mm-hmm. like end in the middle of something and then start in the middle of the next thing. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't really been thinking about that. It was more just a feeling of like, um, I guess it, a feeling that I know from like conversations with people I know well and who know me well, where like you can capture a lot in just a few sentences. Like you don't have to fully explain a thing. (laughs) Everything you just said, I just felt like I learned something from that about cutting off the ends. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of, um, I saw a piece you wrote in bomb, Mm -hmm. Um, but that wasn't Billy. Was it? I think you're thinking of the genuine alacrity of things. That's right. That's what it was. Yeah, the genuine genuine alacrity of things. And when I read that, I thought I thought about um blogs and the internet and um and um electronic pages and block style paragraphs, which <laughs> that is set in block style paragraphs. And I wondered what you thought of that. Cause I kind of thought, I wonder if Evelyn intended it to be formatted like this 
I don't think I would have put it in block style paragraphs. I think, you know, they would have been indented and without a paragraph break between them. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think it does, it does, it really affects, you know, I think it affects how I read as a reader. Um, Mm -hmm. It sets things apart or maybe kind of asks us to like see these jump cuts in the story. It just makes me crazy when they do that. I just hate that. <laughs> it looks kind of like an email. <laughs> well, and that's like, that's how students are writing essays now. Oh. So I just can't say anything because I'm just totally uh, steamrolled over by, you know, it's just the new way of doing things. So yeah, <laughs> something, but I, I, it, it annoys me because, um, you know, some people like indentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like it sometimes. And sometimes I, I don't, I, mm-hmm. my, I keep a little kind of, um, text document as a place where I just take notes or like, I don't really journal, but I guess it ends up kind of working like a journal sometimes. And I, I'm looking at that now and I don't, I don't indent there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I love how some students, they'll indent like two spaces and I'm just I'll just you know I don't know what's going on I know if they're trying to make me crazy or yeah. or but then sometimes it'll and then one paragraph out of the whole thing will be indented like 20 spaces uh, uh, yeah 20 spaces and the rest will be like none or two spaces <laughs> you know could they know that it's like is something I think about at night <laughs> Yeah, I think it would be hard for them to imagine that anyone would care. Um, and prob- I don't know if, like, I know in high school, I had to take, like, a keyboarding classes, you know, and we learned, like, what the tab key did. I don't know if that still happens or if, you know, like, people oh. just start typing when they're five and just whatever they pick up <laughs> from texting and emailing is what they bring into, like, college writing classes. I don't know. So, um, yeah, are you reading anything lately that is of interest? Um, I've been reading a book by Richard Schwartz about internal family systems, um, which is of interest to me and maybe has no bearing on like my writing life or maybe it does. I'm not sure yet. Um, I haven't been reading much fiction I think the last novel I read which took me months was middle March um mm-hmm. mm-hmm. this spring at some point I really enjoyed it I mean it was it was phenomenal how about you I think those um well I think those I think um the family systems book you're talking about is that kind of a by a social worker or it's in that realm in that yeah, he's a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that stuff is. I think that kind of reading is great for for writing. Mm-hmm. I just find that really, really great. Um, just the good stuff and the bad stuff. I guess someone gave me um, a book by Melanie Klein, who I just I just wound up through it, throwing it across the room. It was just God. She's so mean and cold. She's one of like the you know, the generation 
it was Freudian and probably knew Freud or something, but, um, but anything like that or like case studies or, you know, yes, I think, um, I really like the Jungians, the Jungians who followed, who, you know, I liked reading the Jungian disciples writing better than Jung, Jung's writing. Cause, um, and maybe they were a little more emotional or something, but yeah, I, I like, I sure like, um, oh, her name's Maria Luisa von Franz, who wrote a lot about dr- uh, dream interpretation. Um, I, th- I just thought some of her writing was great. I'm just looking at it on my shelf. It's called, sorry, it's called Individuation in Fairy Tales. And so she's concerned with individuation of, you know, psychically, psychologically, and then how fairy tales work that out for us. It's just, it's like magical. It's like, how does that even work? But it's like tarot cards uh-huh. that it, it just winds up making sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading um, Mary Carr's book, The Liar's Club, which I hadn't read before. I think I read that maybe a long time ago. I read a couple books by her. Boy, she's got good verbs. Like she was using worm as a verb and all over the place, rat hole as a verb. (laughs) (laughs) So I love her animal stuff. And, you know, she grew up in Texas where, you know, they had to have guns to kill big snakes and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but rat hole meaning you just hide something. Yeah, I like that. I mean, we say pigeonhole. Why not rat hmm. hole? Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> do you do you um, do you read a lot of fiction? And do you read fiction while you're while you're working on a project? Oh boy, sometimes I can't. I mean, sometimes I just don't have time if I'm working too. But um, I love. Um, Marie Redonay, this. Yes, I do too. You know, I think she stopped writing or something. Her website is minimal. It says she lives in Morocco now with her son. But um, I sure love her work. Yeah, I do too. And just, yeah, now that you said that, I can see it makes sense to me. <laughs> I feel like I see maybe um, your love of her work sometimes in, in your work. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's this one. Now I can't, if it was called Hotel Splendide, but I think it was that one, but it's, everyone has a one syllable name and they're all like Vim, Vig, Jig, (laughs) you know, they're all those kind of names. I love that. And I don't know what she was doing or what she was thinking. And, you know, it's translated. Yeah, it seems like there's maybe some homage to Beckett there, but um, Mm. the naming and also just the repetition makes me think of Beckett, but um, I don't know if she would say that or not. It's just sonic, just a sonic wonder land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you'd think it would get on your mind because, oh, here's coming a new character. Oh, God, I know it's going to be like, you know. Like just, you know, it's like going to be like bop or something. And yep. Yeah. And then you think, wow, you'd get annoyed. But like, I was not annoyed. 
Yeah. How do you, in your stories, like, how do you choose names? Oh, it's just this major whole hobby <laughs> of having <laughs> names. Um, well, in, in my novel, Mice, I really relished looking at names of common names, baby names from 1950 to 1965. And so going through all those lists and, um, oh, and I probably should say that that book might be called Mice. It might be called Mice 1961, or it could be called Where is Mice? Because Mice is a nickname for somebody. So I was just going to say that. But um, yeah, and so the um, sometimes a name will just just jump into my head. And, you know, sometimes the first very first thing you think of, you should just leave it. You know, and um, the very first thing that pops up because it's coming from, you know, that comes from beyond us. So mm-hmm. you, you just keep it. But if you can't, then yeah, there's um, I have it in. So in Francis Johnson, a lot of the men's last names are women's first names, but I gave that up, <laughs> um, pretty much. So now it's um. The main character, one of the main characters is Jody Marrow. And so I thought, well, I should just leave that. And I don't even really like the name Jody, J-O-D-Y, but I just, um, so to mitigate that and to make it seem more real, um, her real name is Josephine. So Jody would be a nickname. So it, So for someone in that era, that seemed more likely. And there's just so many characters in that book, too many, but there's um, a librarian named Minnie, Minnie. And so it's like, I'm really wondered about this, but, you know, I just kind of went with it, but like everything about her is like weak, timid to go and it goes along with her name. So I still need to find a way to kind of cut against that, I think. Mm-hmm. But she's not a very major character, but it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, she's going to find, I think there's a part where she's going to find a little bit more strength or um, assertiveness or something. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is important. And it's, I think it's also important to try and mess with it too. Yeah, I I think Billy was the first name that came to me for this entity in the novella. And I did I did second guess it like Billy is ridiculous. Like I can't <laughs> I can't actually like call something like a, a person Billy, but then of course it's not it's not a person, it's a character and maybe not even quite alive or something. Did it, when you thought about it, did it seem slightly gross or repulsive? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a sure sign, I think, that <laughs> you have to keep it. Yeah, and every time I thought of Billy, like, the name just makes me laugh. So it seemed right. It seems right, yeah, exactly. Does he have a, does anyone have a surname in that novella? No, yeah, I deliberately... Um, did not give anyone a surname um, to kind of cut off ties with like a family. Like nobody really knows where their family is. Um, And nobody uses 
like the their given name either. Um, Carrie is named Carrie by a character named Envy, like for Nevada. Um, and he calls her Carrie because the first time he sees her, she has like blood running down her face and her leg because she's just cut herself on on some detritus. Um, and he thinks of like the horror movie Carrie. Oh. Um, <laughs> And he, he's called Envy just because he's trying to get back to Nevada because he thinks, like, if his mom isn't dead, that she's in Las Vegas. Well, it's interesting how important they are. But, you know, there I think one has this impulse to, you know, also say, who needs a name? We don't need them <laughs> yeah. because of the the real state of things is such that we're so temporary and we're mm-hmm. part of everything else or you know something so so who needs it throw them out <laughs> right so yeah. i like i mean i think envy made me think of that because it's not it i first thought envy yeah but um because it's indeterminate until until i guess you know you learn about it but yeah mm-hmm yeah, and I like the idea of just being able to rename yourself if you want to. Um, hmm. How so? Well, just, you know, like I first stuck with these names our parents gave us. And what if you decide at like 35 that you don't really want anything to do with your parents um, or the name they gave you? Sure. You should yeah. just be able to choose what choose what words we want other people to call us and that we'll respond to it's and again it's just strange that there are those words yeah it is mm-hmm. i'm going to ask you what you're working on now now <laughs> um yeah what am i working on um so i am on paper i have agreed to be working on my dissertation um which uh, will be a novel i think um and will be a substantial revision of a mostly finished draft of a novel I finished a few years ago that feels um, like a lot, like just a lot has happened in the world in the last few years. And I think um, the novel needs some some kind of major overhaul for me to feel like it's um, kind of caught up to where I am now. Um, it will have something to do with Mars. Um, one of the characters is really interested in Mars in kind of like an odious way. And the narrator, um, I'm still trying to figure out what the narrator is interested in. Um, she's, she's kind of stuck. It's, uh, I think I end up writing narrators or characters who are stuck in a way, which is a, a challenge, um, in terms of plot, how to like, but it contend with someone who's stuck and doesn't want to move through time in a way that like moves the reader through time. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a nice problem. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? Uh, you, you, I, I think you're still working on mice, um, but I wonder if there are other, other things you've been working on or just where you are with, with mice. Um, I guess when I started working on this novel, I, I had done a number of stories 
um, including that one Sabrina I mentioned. And yeah, I think I left off there and I'm just, yeah, my, I'm right now just trying to finish a novel, but I, you know, I keep some ideas for, you know, another, another container for mm-hmm. next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's hard to give up a, as you know, it's hard to give up a project you've been working on so long and actually someday give it to strangers who you don't yeah. even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, like, it's real sad. <laughs> yeah, it's good to hold something back, I think, that you don't give a you don't give away. Yeah, yeah. like the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Stacy Levine and Evelyn Hampton for joining us this week. Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn, engineered by Joelle Thibodeau, and read by me, Harry Press. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at fctwo and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.